0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Philippians chapter 2. We are journeying through as a church through this book. We are at the halfway point this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. By the way, there's certain things you get at second service that first service doesn't get. And the one today is if you, maybe you don't notice, but maybe you do. I have orange marker all over my shirt. Apparently the two-year-olds played with orange marker and my daughter decided to share with me in between services. So if you're wondering, does he know he's dressed like a slob? I wasn't first service, but now I am. So that's the the joys of second service. Perhaps none of you would have noticed, but I would have been feeling self-conscious the whole time. So now I'm not feeling self-conscious about it. So um, one of the, the things, if you are like myself and like most people, is you learn not simply by reading or reading an instruction manual, but you learn best by watching someone else do something, then doing it alongside them until ultimately you can do it yourself, right? We We aren't just like computer programs where we like get some code in our head and we are able to do it. But most of us learn best by watching others. And I was trying to think of some commonality in which all of us have learned, not simply by by reading, but actually by observing. And I think the easiest thing for all of us is that how we learned to drive. You did not learn to drive simply by going and reading a book. And this is how you start. But you went and you learned how to drive by years of watching your parents drive which explains why some of you are horrible drivers. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. You can blame mom and dad for that one, right? But, but when it became time to drive, yes, you had to take a class in wherever state you were in or school. You know, there was different things. But ultimately, you learned to drive because you had watched it being done for years and you weren't foreign to the concept and you, you were familiar with it, but you had to make it your own. But you learned by watching and observing, And it's the same in so many areas of life, right? This is why internships and apprenticeships are so important. And it's the same principle rings true in Christianity as well. That we don't just read the Bible and, okay, this is what the Christian life looks like. But but we look at others who are walking with Jesus and we learn from them. It's why the statement's true that Christianity is just as much caught as it is taught. And so with that idea in mind, that we turn to our passage this morning in Philippians chapter 2. This is a unique passage. It's sometimes known as a travel log, not because of the content in it. It is more unique in the book of Philippians because of where it is. Normally, if you read through it, some of these New Testament letters near the end of it, normally the last five to 12 verses or so are kind of like Paul's personal greetings where he starts to say names that are hard for us to pronounce in English. And let's be honest. Most of us skim over it to get to the ends in the next part, right? We're at church. We can be honest here. I do it sometimes. It's okay. We're kind of like, all right, let me get on to the other stuff. I don't know who these people are. What's unique isn't that Paul has some personal greetings in this letter. What's unique is that he puts them right in the middle of the book of Philippians. This doesn't happen very often, but there's a reason why. Now, if you remember if the last two weeks, if you've been with us, two weeks ago, we talked about the, the example of Jesus, but first, before that, even the humility that should describe us and not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Last week, Pastor Ben talked about shining as lights in the world and those who stand out and shine the light Of Jesus in the darkness. And Paul has just written this, and he immediately then comes to mind two individuals that this church in Philippi would recognize embodying these qualities, and he highlights them for it. This is just, again, another reminder this week, in case you forgot, the Bible was not written to you. Sometimes you think it was. The Bible was written many years ago to different people. And so there's two men mentioned this morning that Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. To us, these are individuals that none of us know. Maybe we are familiar with their names, especially Timothy. But to this this church, we're receiving this letter. These are friends. These are people they know. And Paul doesn't have to go into a bunch of context explaining it, but he he exemplifies them as those who are examples of what he's just talked about. And who are embodying this idea of gospel partnership that he's encouraging the entire church in Philippi to live into. And so let's read through our text this morning, starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. It says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to resend him, to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me." The first man mentioned here in the first paragraph is Timothy. This isn't the first time Timothy is seen in this book. If you look back at the very first verse in chapter 1, verse 1, this letter itself is written from Paul and Timothy. Timothy was a known companion of Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And Timothy was a convert later in life. And we see in Acts 14, Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, came to a city named Lystra, and he preached the gospel there, where Timothy heard and received the message of the gospel. About a year or two later, we don't know exactly the timeline, but Paul was traveling back through and encountered again, went back to Lystra and found Timothy um, and saw his growth and maturity in the Lord. Timothy had a Jewish mom and a Greek father, but had become a believer in Jesus. And so Paul invited Timothy to join him on his journeys, to which Timothy said yes. Immediately upon their departure, the first place that they went in Acts 16 was the city of Philippi. And so Timothy was there when those events recorded in Acts 16 of the gospel going to Philippi started. Timothy was there with Paul when Lydia met Jesus, when that church started to assemble in her house. Timothy was a part of those gatherings. And Timothy was regularly sent by Paul as a trusted partner to many different places. He's sent to Thessalonica when Paul is in Athens, he's sent to Corinth at one point when Paul is in Ephesus. And he's, he asks, or he tells them in verse 23 that he will send him soon, just as he sees how it will go with me. Paul is most likely here on trial in Rome. And he's saying, hey, I need Timothy here with me for now with the circumstances I'm facing. But when, it, when the trial is resolved, when things are set here, I will then send him again to you. And I, of course, hope I will come as well. So it's a little bit about Timothy. Next, in starting in verse 25, we're introduced to a guy named Epaphroditus. Now, this isn't to be confused with in the next book of the Bible, in Colossians, there's another man there by the name of Epaphras. They are similar names, probably not the same person. Epaphroditus is most likely a Gentile convert who converted in adulthood to Christianity. His name literally comes from the Greek goddess's name, Epaphrodite. And so he most likely was a worshiper of foreign gods who was converted and followed now Jesus. He was sent from Philippi to where Paul was stationed in Rome with a financial gift along with encouragement from the church in Philippi visiting Paul upon his imprisonment in Rome. We know most likely he traveled on what was called the Ignatian Way to get to Rome. Now, if you remember back to your history classes in high school and junior high, remember all that talk about those Roman roads of the ancient civilizations. Well, he traveled down one of those. This is a picture of the Ignatian Way and what it would look like and what it looks like today in the the Middle East. I believe this is still in Greece. And so he would have traveled a journey of several hundred miles. We have a map here of the destination. So Philippi is just off the coast of the Aegean Sea there, and he would have had to travel all the way over, get on boat, cross over to what is now Italy, and then take that road all the way up to Rome. This is a hundreds of miles of journey. This is not, I'm going to hop in my Tesla, set it in autopilot, and I'll be there in an hour. This is weeks, possibly months worth of travel for Epaphroditus to journey to Rome. Now, somewhere along this journey, most likely along the journey, it could have been when he arrived in Rome, but probably on the way, we see here that Epaphroditus fell ill. Now, the Bible doesn't describe for us exactly what the illness was. Clearly, it was serious, right near to the point of death. One can only conclude from logic then that it was the most horrible of diseases, the man cold, must have been the man cold. That's a joke, all right. It wasn't wasn't the man cold, all right. So we don't we don't know exactly what it was, but Epaphroditus fell ill along the way, but continued on even though he was near to the point of death. But continued on and was faithful and getting to Rome and delivering to Paul this message as well as the gift. Now, most likely, what what why Paul writes this in this way is that Epaphroditus was tasked to go and to stay with Paul for a certain length of time. If you're going to travel that journey, you're not just going to drop it off and leave the next day to head back home. We don't know what it is, but say that he was tasked to go and stay with Paul for six months. If you prayed over someone, sent them out of your church, say he's gonna be gone for six months and two months later, he shows back up, you're being like, why are you back already? Right, did you fail at your mission? Well, why are you back early? And this is why Paul's concern that the church honor him. Why he says in verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He's saying, I am sending him back. He did not fail on his journey. In fact, he nearly died and was faithful still to the task that he was called to. And this is even more important because in their honor-shame culture, which some of you come from those backgrounds, but if you're from a Western background, we don't quite understand the context of the shame that would have been not being fulfilled, this mission given. He's saying, no, no, no. Epaphroditus didn't fail. In fact, he succeeded in his mission. Honor him as such. Don't shame him in any way, even though he is returning to you early. And so we have these two gentlemen who who have partnered with Paul and with this church in Philippi in the gospel. This morning, as we look at these two individuals, we're gonna look at three lessons for gospel partnership that we can learn from Timothy and Epaphroditus and the messages that are conveyed here in the book of Philippians. The first lesson for us is this is the church has never been a one-man show. The church has never been a one-man show. Now, sometimes if you're to think back to this period of time, it's easy to think that what was Christianity like in like the first, you know, 50 to 60 years after Jesus? Well, it was Paul. Paul was going here doing that. Paul was going here doing this. Paul would then travel here. Paul would then go there because Paul is the most prominent Of missionaries. And yes, God used Paul in a profound and powerful way. But it's not like Paul was the only person doing ministry. It's not like Paul was all by himself and there was no one else helping in any other way. And Paul regularly highlights, and the Bible highlights those who came alongside and selflessly served alongside Paul. Maybe don't have the prominence or the name recognition that he has but nonetheless were just as much important what the gospel was doing in the towns and in the regions in which people lived in that time. Look at the selflessness of Timothy in verse 20 and 21. For I have no one like him, he says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And we, we remember back in, in chapter one, how he talked about there were some people preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. He's saying, that's that's not Timothy. He has pure motives. He genuinely is embodying with that idea of being concerned for others, not for yourself. That is true of Jesus. He's saying, that's true of Timothy as well. And I want to send him to you because he is a selfless servant for the gospel. Epaphroditus also has this selflessness as well. We look at verse 26. Maybe you missed it as we read through it. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, what kind of person is it that gets sick nearly to the point of death and their worry is what other people think because they heard that he was sick? He's not worried about his health. He's worried the impact that it will have on others who heard how sick he was. That's a selfless person who's not thinking of themselves, but thinking of other people and the impact that it may have on them to hear that he was not feeling well. See, our selfishness creeps into everything that we do, even the good things that we do. But these men embodied selfless service, selfless service to the church, and selfless service to the gospel. You know, this is a hard attitude to have in our world today because we live in such a consumeristic world. The world we live in, there's no escaping it unless you leave, but the world we live in, especially in this affluent area, is heavily consumeristic. And that consumeristic mentality has found its way very, very prevalently into churches and how we think about church and how it should operate in our lives, because it's just the world we live in. And if we're not consciously fighting back against it, we will delve right into that kind of thinking about Christianity and church as well. In fact, I think there's a few unique things on why this is a particular struggle and challenge for us as followers of Jesus in this time and in this place. The first reason I think that consumerism is such a challenge for us is also actually one of the huge blessings of living in this time and in this era is online ministry, right? Is that you can go online and find a sermon by anyone on any topic at any time. Now, I'm going to make a bold statement, but I believe it is 100% true that the sermon you will hear this morning at Morgan Hill Bible Church is not the best sermon that will be preached in the world today. I'm confident in my abilities. I'm also confident there are a lot of people who are much better than I am. It's not even the best sermon preached in the U.S. today, probably not even the best in the Bay Area today. But the challenge is now we have such access to everything, which is amazing, but it also presents some challenges. Because we can go online, and guess this, we don't even have to wait for it to be posted. We can go online and stream amazing preachers preaching amazing things that deal just with my problems every single day, and it all is to feed me. Now, remember, this is a unique problem to us now. What did you have to do for most of church history if you wanted to hear the great preacher? Well, you had to go travel somewhere. Or maybe he would travel or she would travel to your hometown and preach at your church. But it was just kind of, you heard about them, but you never could hear them. Then this amazing invention came along radio, right? You could listen to a radio program and you can maybe then hear a gifted communicator or preacher then. And then came along the life-changing ministry in churches, the cassette ministry. Does anyone remember the cassette ministry? where if you really liked a sermon or a preacher, you could get their cassettes and you could listen to them in the cassette deck. Kids, ask your parents on the way home today. What is a cassette, mom? Like, they'll they'll explain it to you. We remember, right? Well, the cassette ministry, even myself, when I first started preaching, if you wanted to get a copy of it, you couldn't go online. You had to go to the lobby afterwards to get a CD because it wasn't posted online. Now we don't even have to wait for them to be posted. They are live streamed all over the world. Now, again, This is a huge blessing. And there's people joining us online right now who aren't able to be here in person. And so it is a blessing, but it also is a challenge because it can become, I can get whatever I want anytime I want. And church can just become a way of us getting what we feel we want whenever we want it. And we can just be consumers of Christianity. So that's, I think, a unique challenge for us The second challenge that we face in this time and in this age is the professionalization of everything in life. That everything now has a professional. And it can be very easy as you look at church and as ministry to look around and say, Hey, listen, I didn't go to Bible college. I certainly didn't go to graduate school and get an advanced degree in it. You know who should serve in the church? It's those who have those degrees because we hire professionals for every single thing in life, and so let's just have the professionals do everything at church because that's who should be doing all the thing. We should leave the ministry to the experts and if we're not if we 're not careful, these kind of consumeristic mentalities come in to how we think about church. I want to ask you a question when it comes to church. Are you a consumer or a contributor to the church? If Morgan Hill Bible Church is your home church, are you here to just consume, to, to be fed, or are you here to contribute to the life and the work of what God is doing in this place through our church? Let me give you an example of, of how this idea being a consumer or a contributor of what this may look like. Imagine you are out to eat at a restaurant. Maybe you're with some friends or, you know, with a spouse or family or whatever. And it's it's a nice meal. It's a quiet, it's a, it's a beautiful restaurant. You're having a great time. And suddenly off in the distance, you hear that dreaded sound of crashing plates, right? Of things breaking, of things falling. And like, it happens once in a while at a restaurant, right? I personally think that's why I never had the audacity to go be a server, because I was sure I would just spill water all over people all the time. And so imagine you hear that. What do you think when you hear that sound? You think to yourself, That really stinks for whoever has to go pick all that up, right? That really stinks for that person who has to clean up that huge mess. Now, what happens when you hear that sound of crashing plates and you're at home? Suddenly it's different, right? It's like, is everyone okay? What do I need to do? Because there's ownership, right? This is not someone else's problem. This is now my problem. When you're at a restaurant, not my problem. When you're at your house, this is. When you see a problem, when you see a challenge, when you see a need to be met at church, what's your first thought? That's for someone else to do or that's for me to do? Because sometimes it's easy to show up at a church and be like, "Oh, that person's got a lot of issues. I hope the pastor's can really help them. Good luck." Right versus, "Man, that person's gone through a lot in life. I wonder how I could be used by Jesus to help serve and model Jesus to them. I wonder how I could serve and show the love of Christ to them. See, it's, it's easy to assume that others will always step in and do, but Jesus calls all of us to be contributors to the work that he's doing. It's easy to think when, when we talk about kids day camp coming this summer, the nearly hundred volunteers that will take to minister to almost 200 kids in this church. It's easy to think, oh, other people will sign up that, you know, the people who are great with kids. I'm not, other people will do it and not to do it ourselves. It's easy when we talk about giving and generosity to be like, well, there's people here who make more money than I do, so they should give first, and then after they do their part, then maybe I'll give if it's still needed after that. It's easy to excuse, but just to be consumers of what the church is doing rather than to be an active contributor. This passage teaches us that every Christian is to be a contributor to the work of what God is doing. The second lesson that we see from this passage is that deep relationships come through gospel partnerships. Deep relationships with others come through the kind of gospel partnership that Paul has been describing here and gives specific examples here of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Notice the language that he uses for both of them. For Timothy in verse 22, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. It's like this man is like my own flesh and blood. He's like my very son. His relationship is so dear and so close. With Epaphroditus, he says this in verse 25, he says, he's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Again, intimacy described in those words. In fact, the word fellow there, which we see in fellow worker and fellow soldier, that same beginning is the same word from which we get our words synergy and synthesis, this idea of unity, of oneness Together, Paul is saying that that's this kind of relationship that I have with this man who has so sacrificially served others. Now, there's this unique thing that when we walk side by side with others through obstacles, through unique and challenging experiences, that it, we actually grow and are bonded close together. I've realized this or not, but actually when you go through a a challenging experience, your brain actually sends out chemicals to the people around you as you go through these experiences together. It's why we become so close to those of us who we go through hard or difficult experiences together with. There's so many ways that I've seen this happen in person in powerful ways. One of the favorite things I got to do when I was a youth pastor is I got to go speak at a camp every summer. And the camp that I would speak at was for freshmen only, those going into their ninth grade year of high school. And they would take normally about 60 to 80 kids. And what they would do is in each cabin, there was only one or two kids you knew. So it was mostly kids that you had never met in your life before. And they would show up Monday afternoon, but the next morning you would leave and go on a rafting trip. They would take, here's your raft. You have to blow it up yourself. Here's your paddle. We'll be eight miles down the road. By the way, they did give them a counselor. It wasn't just like 14-year-olds all by themselves. But, but here's your 19-year-old counselor who's not a professional at rafting any means. We'll see you eight miles later. And they would just go. And it was amazing to see the difference between these groups of 14-year-old kids who had no idea who each other were at the start of that day versus eight miles down the river later right? Because they would hit trees, they would fall out, they would get stuck. All of these things would happen along the way that they went through an experience and suddenly there's this bonding to one another that wasn't true even just that very morning. Now, I don't think serving together is, excuse me, I don't think this idea of relationship is the primary motivation, but it's an amazing byproduct of what happens when you serve in the body of Christ is the relationships that you will form, not just from coming and listening to a sermon and leaving, but the relationships that you will form when you step in to serve alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ are unique to any other kind of relationships that you can have in the world. I've experienced this in my own life. When I was in college, I would show up to the church that I was a part of. I would show up during the singing. None of you ever do that. You're always here, right? Early on time. We show up during the singing. I was blessed by it. Listen, the sermon the pastor was a great preacher. Got, got blessed by the sermon during the last song. I would slide out to get back to lunch early. None of you also, none of you ever leave church early to get to lunch. I'm sure that I'm the only one who's ever done that. None of you have done that. Don't worry. But what happened? I I, I was a part of the church. I was there, I think a year and a half, two years. And I, I enjoyed the church, but I had zero relationship, zero friendships at the church. What changed is when I said, you know, what, actually, I should start helping with the youth group. And I started stepping in and I started serving and suddenly I started forming relationships, which almost 20 years later now are still, I would call very good friends of mine because there's a unique dynamic that happens not when you show up to consume, but when you show up to contribute to what the body of Christ is doing. And perhaps if Morgan Hill Bible Church is your church, if you haven't found your people yet, if you don't have these kind of relationships that Paul is talking about in this passage, maybe the best solution is to dive into service somewhere here in our church. And it's not gonna happen overnight, but the relationship that you will form serving alongside one another is unique and it's deep and it's a powerful tool that God uses to encourage us in our walk with Jesus. So that this deep relationship happens as a result of serving alongside one another. The third lesson that this passage teaches us about gospel partnerships is that serving Jesus is costly, but it is worth it. Serving Jesus is costly, but it is worth it. I'm going to let you a little bit into the crazy mind of Michael when I put messages together. I, um, I, I obsess sometimes over single words that go in outlines for like days, and this outline was different on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It was slightly different. One or two words different. And I couldn't, I wasn't happy. I was sitting with it. And I'm like, it's just, it's not right. And finally, Wednesday, I almost emailed it off. And I'm like, no, I kind of went and I took a walk and cleared my head. And I'm like, no, I need to change it. And what this outline originally said was this, serving Jesus can be costly. And then I changed it to serving Jesus may be costly. I was like, no, it's serving Jesus. Is costly. There will be a cost to serving Jesus. And we see this from the men here in this passage. For Timothy, there was great cost. He left his family, he left his whole livelihood, anything to follow after Jesus in partnership with Paul. For Epaphroditus, he nearly died. It cost him health. He nearly died as a result of following after Jesus. There is a cost to discipleship and serving God. And churches do damage to followers of Jesus when we don't speak the truth on this reality, right? You've ever been frustrated because the expectations of something didn't match up with the reality of it? You know, if we came and said, you know, uh, you know, serving Jesus once in a while, it's, it's hard, but I don't care. But most of the time it's just great and all your problems will be gone. And then you actually started doing it. You'd be like, wait a second. This isn't what I was sold. This is not what it actually is. I realized this idea of how when expectations don't match reality. Many years ago, my wife and I love to hike. And before we had kids, we would often go on very long hikes together. And right as we would start, I would be the one planning the hike. And almost, I could, I could always guarantee, within the first five minutes of the hike, when we would set out, my wife would always ask the same question. How long is this hike? It's a dangerous answer, whatever comes out of your mouth next. And I had to learn to say, the website says... Versus saying, oh, it's this long. Because what happens? The website says, and in actuality, are often two very different numbers. The clearest I remember this is we were up in the Tetons once, and it was like, it is a five-mile hike up to this alpine lake. I'm like, beautiful five miles, 10 miles run trip, perfect. Nine miles later, we got to the lake. I'm like, did I start at the wrong spot? Like, what is going on? And this 10-mile hike became 18, right? Right. Versus now it would be like, well, the website says it's this long, but I don't know, right? Because I don't want to set up expectations. The Bible is clear that serving and following Jesus will cost things in our lives. Jesus makes it clear. The Bible makes it clear. Jesus says this to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4 We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And even what Paul wrote just a chapter earlier in this book in Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Following Jesus and serving Jesus and leaning into gospel partnership like Paul had and Timothy had and Epaphroditus had, and he was encouraging this whole church to will be costly, but it is worth it. It is worth the cost. Now, how can one serve like this in a costly way, but do so with joy from their hearts? How can we do so with joy, which is the overwhelming theme of Philippians, How can he say to this, this man of Paphrodite should be received in joy because of what he's done? He almost died. What's the joy in that? I think it comes back to our motivation for why we do what we do. Our motivation for why we would serve Jesus. See, if we're motivated to serve Jesus because it's a sense of obligation in our lives, there won't be a lot of joy. If we're like, hey, you know what? To be an adult Christian means... I should get a good job, I should pay my bills, and I guess I should serve Jesus. And it's along that line, you're not gonna do so with a heart of enthusiasm and joy and find great reward in it, even at great cost in your life. But what happens is that when we don't serve Jesus out of a sense of obligation, but of joy and thankfulness for what he's done for us, suddenly the cost of what we have to give up and following him and serving him starts to get very small in comparison to the joy of serving Jesus. See, when we understand the magnitude of God's grace, when we understand the fact that Jesus' sacrifice for you is far greater than anything you will ever give up to follow after him. Jesus laid down his life so that we can be saved. And anything that he asks of us, any sacrifice you make will not be as much as what Jesus sacrificed for you when we start to understand how great God's love is, how great his mercy and grace is, how great the sacrifice of Jesus is, then serving him won't be a sense of obligation, but will be joy in whatever it would cost us in our lives. And it's only when we serve from that source of joy, of understanding what Jesus has done for us, can we serve through great cost, even to our own personal lives. And so this is what the gospel calls us to that all of us serve together, that we show up not just to consume, but to contribute to the work that God has done for us and is doing here. That we find deep relationship as we serve together and that we, even seeing the cost of what it serves, of what it costs to follow after Jesus and serve him, say it pales in comparison to what Jesus has done to me. So I will serve with joy, recognizing what God has done for me in Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, that He served and gave down his life for us. God, may we serve others. May we serve your church in the same way. God, I thank you that that as I look out this morning, I see so many here who show up week after week, month after month, year after year, not to consume, but to contribute to the life of what you are doing in this place. God, I ask that you would continue to be more and more, that we would step in not showing up just to be fed but to to be a part of the work that you are doing in this church and in this place. God and we thank you for Jesus and for the difference he makes in our lives and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.